Dwayne alcoholic. <laughs> I want to thank Chester and Lester. <laughs> I got to fess up. I called them the Molester Brothers out in California. <laughs> they was molesting eggs in December at Evans Avenue breakfast. I want to thank you for inviting me to come share with y'all. Uh, and uh, Calvin for picking me up this morning. and and uh, Or James and Calvin for taking the call and picking me up. And, and whoever else is involved in the committee, thank you. It's a... Uh, you know, it's a privilege for me to get to come here. I don't take it for granted. I hope I never take it for granted. I don't think it's a big deal that I get to be here. I just think it's a blessing in my life that I get to uh, participate in your convention. I just want to thank you for inviting me into your home. Because I know what it's like when people come to my home group and, and we want to entertain them and try not to laugh at them and be kind to them and considerate. <laughs> just in case you don't like what I got to say. <laughs> Figure me as well butter up my toast. <laughs> it's really good to be here. I don't know about you. If you're new, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. I want you to know I love Alcoholics Anonymous more than anything on God's green earth. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I even love it more than Budweiser, and that's a challenge. <laughs> Nothing. I don't care what you drank. It wasn't Budweiser, if it wasn't Budweiser. And I mean, I drank it. I loved it so much, it made the Clydesdales look good. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't interested in sheep. <laughs> I'm not wired right. I want you to know that right straight up right now. There's something going on in my mind that I'm not usually aware of until I start think, think, thinking. And then I find out I'm very important. I become aware of my being and how sensitive I am. And how afraid I am. And how I don't feel like you look. How I don't blend in with you. The book says that we are people <laughs> who normally would not mix. <laughs> Especially in this crowd. We all men. I would not have mixed with you, I promise. <laughs> Just because you ain't got what I want and I'm not willing to go to any place to get it. So. <laughs> Oh, God love it. God help me. First, before I get started, I want to I want to introduce three of the people I sponsor. They flew out here from California to be part of this. Come on, get up, guys. Uh, this one over here is Reed, alcoholic. Uh, the big ugly dumb one there is Jason. He'll wave at you. <laughs> He's new. <laughs> and that's Gary. Alcohol. The people I sponsor are important to me, quite frankly, because I don't have anything to laugh at myself about much anymore. <laughs> I just watch them. I hope you sponsor people. Sponsorship has played an incredibly important role in my life, not just in my sobriety alone, in the event of not drinking, but it's been incredibly important to my entire existence and what I've learned in my life. And I'll share that a little bit later on. I don't want to get ahead of myself. I, I have a hard time. I'm retarded. I just have a heck of a time keeping track of what I'm going to say anyway. I wish I could just pull a recorder and just quit right now and get over this. You know, i got these things in my stomach. I know it doesn't look like I'm nervous. It doesn't look like I'm shy, probably, but I'm incredibly shy. I don't know how to keep a conversation going unless I'm talking about myself. <laughs> and nobody wants to hear about that. <laughs> and so i got to sit and listen to you. And you talk about things like the weather, the bulls. The bears, mosquito bites. I don't know what you talk about, but I don't know what to say. You see, I'm always thinking, and I'm always afraid to say the wrong thing, and I'm afraid you're not going to like me if I do talk to you. And I know you're going to find out what I'm really like, and as soon as you find out what I'm really like, you won't have anything to do with me anyway. And that's how I grew up. I come from an alcoholic home. I had a dad that's a chronic alcoholic, a mom that was an intense chronic alcoholic, a real weird brother. And a sister that just could beat me up any given time she wanted to. And I don't want to get into the trauma of that. I, I mean, part of it's my story, but I, I just don't want to go into that, so I'm not going to too much. But if you're from an alcoholic home, you understand. Uh, interesting things went on that had a definite impact in my gr failure to grow up. I grew up feeling stupid, dumb, and ugly, and I don't know why. I, I'm, I, just, I look in the mirror at an early age, and I think to myself, Butler, it's too bad, pal. It's going to be a long life. <laughs> you are butt ugly. God gave you big feet and a little everything else. You're in trouble, pal. 
Now, I told myself that all by myself. Now, I had one pimple on the right square in the middle of my forehead, and if I popped it, I knew my face would fly off. I didn't know what to do. They didn't have them patchy things where they take out zits now. I didn't. And I had 13 half-inch feet, and I just was awkward. You know, in my mind, I was Fred Astaire. In my feet, I was Molary and Curly. <laughs> I was. And I didn't know how to talk to people. I, I just didn't talk. I didn't know what to say. And I was scared to death because every, every night between 1 and 3, my dad would come home, and I would be trying to find a hiding place because I didn't know what was going to happen. He might beat me up, might beat my mom up, might terrorize me. I don't know what he might do. I had no idea how that affected me. You know, I'm, I'm an alcoholic today, but I was a pre-alanon until I took my first drink. And I guess I better talk about drinking. You might think I'm a depressed, codependent, looking for someone to nurture me, I guess. I don't know. I'm out of my mind most of the time until I found the most gifted, blessed thing in my life. I got put in a recovery class in ninth grade. And I stayed there until I graduated high school. I made it through high school all the way without having to read one book. They called me retarded. And since I like to do what I'm called, I became retarded. I started acting guilty. It has its advantages. See, the retarded, there's only 12 of us in the retarded class. And I made it to the top of the heap in a hurry. <laughs> I was the number one retard. I was. And I could go to the girls' bathroom without getting detention. <laughs> and no teacher would dare ask me a question. Because <laughs> they wasn't sure how I'd respond. And you know, I'm sitting there, if I know the answer, I don't want to raise my hand because then you're going to think I'm smart and you won't like me. And then I'm terrified that you will call on me, and I don't know the answer, and you'll laugh at me. I lived like that for approximately 35 years of my life. I was a child in a grown-up body, and I didn't understand these emotions I have. I don't understand this feeling I have. I don't fit in. I was at the Midnight Mission in Los Angeles, and uh, I was sharing to a bunch of skid row drunks just like I was, and I was sharing that I knew how they felt. I'd been where they were. I understand what they thought. And this gentleman who happened to be African-American was sitting right about where you are. And he jumped up and he said, but you don't know how it is to feel black. And I said, you are absolutely right. I don't even know how it is to feel white. <laughs> now, that's a problem. <laughs> it will create disassociation. <laughs> but it was true. I don't. I would feel better when I was in a crowd of some other kind of personality. Because I feel different already, right from the gate. I feel like I don't fit in, I'm not a part of. And when I'm with an agency of people that are not like me, then I'm different and I'm okay because I know I'm different. But if you put me in a group of people, six foot three, 240 pounds white, I feel different. That's confusing. I grew up like that and I don't understand it. Well, we had a guy in the, that took care of the retards. His name was Tom. Tom was our pal. Tom took us places, cared about us. Brought us ice cream cones, asked us not to bite him or nothing. He took us to ball games. He loved us retards. And if he gave any of the other ones more attention than me, he had hell to pay. Let me tell you that right now. I'd make him look bad. I'd embarrass him. I'd pick my nose in public. I'd do something to make him feel bad and never, ever give someone else more attention than he's given me. Now, I don't know where that came from. But I was 17 years old. I weighed six foot three. I was 120 pounds. I felt stupid, dumb, and ugly. And Tom took me to a party. I went to that party and I stood up against the wall and I watched everybody else dancing, having a good time. I'm over against the wall. In my mind, I know I can dance like Fred Astaire, but I know if I take one step, I'm going to trip and look like a fool. And I don't know what to say to a girl. How do I talk to a girl? And Tom brought me over a brown, long-necked bottle with a red, white, and blue label. I like that because I'm a patriot. And it was Budweiser. He said, here, drink this. It'll make you feel better. I said, okay. So I drank it and it tasted terrible. I said, Tom, that tastes terrible. I'd rather have a Pepsi Cola. He said, drink another. You'll get used to it. Oh, boy, I did. I did. I want to tell you about Budweiser. It did something to me that biologically and chemically it is not supposed to do to a human being. I went to that party, six, three hundred twenty pounds, and scared death of everybody. Somewhere between four or five Budweiser's, I got so good looking, I couldn't stand it. <laughs> 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 I did. I grew muscles. I didn't know. I anything grew. <laughs> I looked across the room and I eyed me a blonde, and I went right up to her. Found out that night sex meant two people. 
Oh, yeah, I'll quit drinking. I blacked out that night. Came through the next morning, found out I had fun. We didn't know who I had fun with, but I had fun. Found out her name was Bonnie George Patrick, and she was 16. Short time later, I heard my dad talking to her dad, I expect, and I'm retarded. I don't know nothing about nothing. And I hear him talking about hunting. My dad said something about a rabbit dying. <laughs> my dad says, you got a problem, pal. <laughs> I didn't know what that meant until he said she was pregnant, and I knew that. That's a problem. And he said something about statutory rape, and I thought, oh, I don't know what that means. So I went and talked to one of the other retarded kids. <laughs> so I decided I was in love when I found out marriage would end the going to jail. So uh, we got her dad and my dad to agree, and I went to Palmyra, Missouri, got married on the way back in Palmyra, Missouri. I'm a married man, 17 years old, in the retarded senior class at high school. <laughs> I was a 16-year-old wife. With a baby to be. Just couldn't wait for the next one. So I joined the Navy. I'm most disabled and discontent on the natch. I don't need any help. That helped it. And I found out I could get in the Navy if my dad signed the papers. But since I was in the retarded class, I had to sign the Naval Reserve because that gave him a year to watch me. Because Vietnam was cooking and they were wanting bodies. So I joined the Naval Reserve. My dad signed the papers. And I went out of there, pal. So I went to another party. I wasn't drinking Budweiser gangs. I don't want no more babies. And I saw this bottle. It was clear. It was tequila. I've never had that. I don't know what that is. As far as I know, it could be 7-Up. So I drank the whole bottle. Tom says, that stuff will catch up to you. I didn't know. Do you know what that means? I didn't know what that means. It means when I drink tequila, I'm talking to God. God sat right on my lap. And I talked to God. I told him about my family, about my terrible, abusive, alcoholic father, my poor mother who takes it and I don't like her for that, my brother who is cruel and mean to me, we don't like that, my sister I don't want her around, the new wife and the kid, God, they're yours, take them. What do you think I ought to do? I heard God tell me, kill them. That's what I heard. So then I waited for the message on how to do that because I don't have any experience at killing a family. Well, the answer never came, so I figured I'd have to do that on my own. So apparently I went home. I went in the house, blew out all the pilot lights, turned all the gas on, went out on the front porch and waited for my family to die. I came to the next morning with my mother kicking me in the shoulders with a seriously bad headache. Everyone else had headaches. I forgot to close the windows. Right <laughs> <laughs> well, into the doctor. <laughs> and the doctor was evaluating me. That was fun. He goes like this with ink. What's that? I said, well, it looks like ink blot. <laughs> so that was the science. Now, I wasn't there when the doctor talked to my mother, but, you know, he knew I was in the Naval Reserve and he knew all about that stuff. So here's my take on what he did. Remember, I wasn't there. He said to my mom, Mrs. Butler, you're bouncing brown eye baby boy is nuts. And if you don't get him out of here, he's going to kill you and everybody else around him. He's a, he's a potential homicidal psychopath. Always wanted to have potential. <laughs> I'm a massive unrealized potential. So she says, let's get him shipped to Vietnam. That'll take care of it. That's what he had to have done, because shortly after that, I'm at Treasure Island, San Francisco, and I'm on my way to Vietnam at 18. Now, I went over there. I never drank a drop, because those first two drunks concerned me. <laughs> I didn't want to quit. I just waited. <laughs> we need some space here. Something's happening. I don't understand. So, I'm in Vietnam. I don't drink nothing, I don't smoke nothing, I don't do no drugs, I just smoke four packs of Paramount cigarettes a day. I'm gone total of three months, three years. I come back 21 years old, I've got three rows of ribbons, I've been recognized for bravery with three other members of my unit, and they made me a captain's driver. I'm a legend in my own mind, I can't hardly stand it. My duty consists of picking the captain up at home, taking him to the ship and doing some meagerly things and then taking him home at night. 
Now, I want you to know something. I love my captain just as much as I love my sponsor and as much as I love God. I just thought he was the greatest person in my life at the time. One night, he asked me to babysit his kids, and I would never say no to him. I said, I'd be glad to babysit your kids. So on the way to his house to pick up his kids, I want you to know how my mind works. <laughs> my mind says, Wayne, you ain't drank for three years. Let's get a beer. After all, you've only drank twice. And nothing really bad happened. <laughs> Let's look at the record. First time you drank, you did a very godly thing. You reproduced. You brought a child into the world. Second time you drank, you saved your family's life. <laughs> you didn't close the windows. What can it hurt? And I stopped and got a six-pack of Bud. And I drank it. And I put the kids in the car to go get another six-pack of Bud. And that's all I remember, except for when I came out of that blackout. My captain was standing two feet from my face, two inches from my face, right there, screaming, where's my kids? And I don't know. I was restless, irritable, discontent. <laughs> On the verge of pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization. We found them. They were okay. I couldn't understand why I was so mad. If they had been hurt, you had a right to be mad. I said, we found the kids. They're okay. I won't do it again. He says, you got to come see me Monday morning. You're restricted to the ship. So I, of course, jump ship. Because when you tell me thou shalt not, I've got to do that next. I don't know what it is in my mind, but if you tell me something that I can't do, I'm doing it now. It's like seeing a wet paint sign. I gotta know. I do. <laughs> I do. I get slick. I get slick about it. <laughs> now, if it's what I want to sue the city. My mind's a funny place to be. Shouldn't go there alone. <laughs> Whoever wrote Home Alone has to be in this me- in this program. <laughs> Got to be chairing a meeting somewhere. Well, the captain offered me two options. One, go to treatment. I said, I've drank four times in my life. Treatment for what? He says, you're a chronic alcoholic. I said, what? So my dad's the alcoholic. I'm not an alcoholic. I've drank four times. And he said, well, you can think whatever you want. But you had a blackout. We consider that alcoholism. I said, well, you said option. I understand that word. He said, uh, your option is we're going to kick you out of the Navy. I said, I'll take it. I'm, I was a career man. I love my uniform. I'm proud of the red, white, and blue. I want you to hear that loud and clear. I'm proud of my country. I'm glad I get to wave that flag. And I'm not mad at my country. But I took the discharge. Unbelievable. I've only drank four times. I got home to a wife and now two kids that I didn't want, that I didn't understand what was going on, and I started drinking a little more. And my wife divorced me because I became unpredictable. I tried to blame it on Vietnam. But I secretly, unconsciously knew that there was something wrong with me. And I didn't know what the problem was. When I tell you what I know my problem is, it might surprise you, because I haven't mentioned it yet. Alcohol is not my problem. Alcohol only became my problem when it quit making me feel normal. That's when it became a problem. Alcohol was my solution. I had no idea when I left the Navy I was protecting my right to drink 4.5 Budweiser so I could feel like you look, so I could be a man amongst men. So I could be a man amongst society and not injure anybody. Because when I drink, that's how I feel. And then I black out and do things I horribly regret the next morning. Sometimes I don't even want to come to. I married my second wife in a five-day blackout. Had no idea who she was when I came out of that blackout. She had to produce a marriage certificate to convince me I was married to her. And as soon as I saw I'm in love. Couldn't believe I married her if I wasn't in love with her. I wish I could remember it. At least she wasn't pregnant yet. We stayed married 12 years. And I want you to hear something. I stand up here a man who stole the childhood of five kids. I destroyed the dignity and the respect of three women. And I hope I can balance the books in my sobriety. That's why I'm here. I'm here because when I come do this, it takes a book that was out of balance and starts one day at a time to balance a checkbook that I wrote. I wish I could blame alcoholism. It is, but it isn't. Self-will run riot took everything away from me that meant anything to me, and it took away anything I never saw. You know, it's a heck of a deal 
when you want things you'll never have, as I did. I wanted to be a professional baseball player. You have no idea how bad I wanted to be a professional. I've got a fastball that was splinter the barn door. I was up to bat in Little League, and the game was riding on my next swing, and the umpire called third strike. It wasn't a strike. It was high. <laughs> he said, no, it's a strike. You're out. And I said, so are you, pal. <laughs> so I hit him over the bat. <laughs> they said something about Jimmy Pearsall. <laughs> and they don't need two of them. But I wanted to play baseball. And I didn't mean to do that. I didn't mean to do that. And I said I was sorry, but it didn't help. <laughs> Have you ever done that and said you're sorry after you've done something like that and they just don't appear to listen? <laughs> God, I love Budweiser. I do. I, I, so, things got bad to move along. My wife, my second wife had two kids, and, and uh, I was getting worse and worse and worse, and <clears throat> alcohol wasn't working anymore. It, no matter how much I drank, whatever it was I was searching for never came back. I had nothing to fix the madness that was on my mind. I was afraid all the time. I was paranoid. I was afraid to open the mail. I couldn't go to the door. I couldn't answer the phone. I couldn't even go to work some days. Sometimes it's because I was drunk and I'm over, and sometimes I was just afraid to go to work because I didn't know what I'd do. And that's the way I lived my life. And my my uh, second wife had a horrible time with me. God love her. I I just I stole her. I stole 12 years of her life. And uh, the madness that was in my mind. And I remember. Uh, when it got down to the end of my drinking, I was starting to mix drinks because I, I'll tell you that in a minute, but I took Budweiser and Ripple wine and mixed it. God, that's good. But, but it didn't work. And so I took an added Boone Farm Strawberry Hill. That didn't work. I threw in Mad Dog 2020 Great. Now when you put them things together, it will work. <laughs> it will work to give you terminal diarrhea. You know what terminal diarrhea is? That's where you go till you're gone, pal. <laughs> Ain't no weight gain. You can eat all the protein you want. It's gone. And you, it requires split-second timing. And you got to have good decision-making skills. It's like one time I was at Larry's Oasis at the bar, and I thought to myself, hmm, seems like gas. <laughs> uh, and I made a decision. One which I would like to have taken back. <laughs> Lent a new meaning to the word shea egg. <laughs> oh, I miss drinking. <laughs> I had a series of mornings and nights where I would come home and my wife would want to know where the rent money was and I couldn't tell her. She'd send me out for a gallon of milk and three days later I'd come home and the milk would be cottage cheese. I'd, I'd, I'd lose my wallet, and I couldn't tell her what I really spent the money for. And then one night, I've got to tell you this, I'm not happy about it, and I'm sure not proud of myself, but one, one night I came home, and in the morning I was, I was hungover. And, and a series of circumstances happened. I was so jealous. My wife had said something to a guy. She said, hi. You know, I, that scares me. I don't know about you. And she said something else like, can we pay the rent? I'm not sure. But I threw her down to the floor, and I took my 357 out, and I put it to her head with my two girls watching me, and I pulled the trigger. I'll never forget the look in their face. I want you to know that. Gun misfired. I still got that round at home with an indentation in the top of the cap from the firing pin. It didn't go off. She left me anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I won't do it again, baby. I didn't mean to. I'm sorry. I'll quit drinking. I promise. She tried to get control of my kids to take them out of my life. And I said, please don't take my baby girls. And she started walking out the door, and I said, please, I'm begging you. I got down on my knees. I crawled up to her and put my hands around her ankles and begged her not to leave me. And she goes through the door, takes my kids out the door, and as soon as she got 15 feet outside, I said, Go ahead and leave you, bitch. Who needs you anyway? And for what? How many places you? And bus comes by every 15 minutes. 
I slammed the door shut, broke a couple of windows, and then slid down the door and bowed myself into an attempted suicide. And I didn't know what was wrong. I thought I was evil. I was absolutely powerless. And I sat there in absolute self-contempt and self-loathing. I was filled with pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization at what I'd just done. Three days later, my wife came back. She said she loved me and missed me. There's a program for her. I think she should have read that book, Women Who Love, too much. (laughs) I'm going to tell you what I did. I did the most merciful thing I could do. Because you know when I said, I'm sorry, I'll never do it again? There was a voice inside me that said, yes, you will. And it isn't going to be long. Because you can't not drink. And I moved out. She couldn't understand why I was leaving. And I didn't know what to tell her. I just left. I moved out and moved down to Skid Row because I had nowhere to go. I had no money, no job, no nothing. I moved into an abandoned car behind Harvey's restaurant. And I would go into Harvey's restaurant and I would sweep and mop and wax the dining room floors for two sausage sandwiches on whole wheat toast. I wouldn't get my sandwich until they were done waxed. One night he came in and he gave me my sandwiches and then he gave me this brass coin. And on one side it had these two A's. See, Harvey was about, oh, five foot tall. He had this big, swollen, broken up, blood veined nose. Didn't know they called it whiskey nose. He says, uh, I'm going to give you an address. I want you to go see these people. They're friends of mine. They're going to help you. And I thought he meant free food. And I will go anywhere at any time for free food. So I found that address the next day. I was kind of drunk. But on the side of the building, there was a sign that said, Condemned, do not enter. It was in the basement of that building. They were in the process of moving. I didn't know that. Wouldn't have, wouldn't have meant nothing to me. But I looked down the cellar steps. The cellar windows were painted black. I found out later that was for anonymity. There was a light bulb on a cord, and it was on. And so I went in. And on the way in, I failed to notice that the doorway was 5'10ish. And I'm 6'3. <laughs> I caught it right at the eyebrow, and it knocked me out. I landed flat on my back, bounced my head on the floor. I looked up, and here's a table full of six or seven old people just... They must have been talking about death and dying. Because you could tell it wasn't going to be long for any of them. And i got to tell you what the ugliest one did. The ugliest one there, and he wasn't even five foot tall. He goes just like this. Slide right on in here, dummy. <laughs> we got a wrench to fit every nut that comes in the door. <laughs> I didn't like him right away. That's no way to meet a heat and packing heat. Next thing out of his mouth, and I'm going to be your sponsor. Okay? The only sponsorship I've known about is on baseball teams where they pay for everything. Then he said the only thing he could have said to get me, 23 years old, to come to another meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, if you'll meet me tomorrow morning, I'll buy you breakfast. (laughs) I wasn't late. (laughs) You know, sometimes it's hard to get new people to show up. I'll bring breakfast. They don't want me there. So he went to the, he took me to the Blandine Brady Street group of Alcoholics Anonymous in Davenport, Iowa. To the breakfast meeting. I walked in the door upstairs, and they got these round tables. And they had these bowls of jailhouse donuts. These donuts were so hard, you had to soak them for the whole meeting just to chill. And I said, what's this? And he says, well, dummy, that's breakfast. <laughs> I said, I can't wait for dinner. Now, I love AA. And especially for what happened during the next five years, I came to your meetings drinking. I came for five years, and I didn't know why. I don't know why I followed that little lunatic around. I wanted to kill him. I didn't like him. I didn't like him at all. I'd spit on him if I had the chance. I hated his guts. He'd smile. And I'd just imagine pulling his teeth without Novocaine. Like, he's mean. He said, Dummy, where's your ashtrays? I said, My name's Wayne. He says, I got it, buddy. What's that say? Why I got to wash your hands, dirty him? He said, now clean the cups. 
I don't want to clean the cuts. Give me your damn cuts. He said, I said, wash the cuts. And then he'd leave. They said, sweep the floor, dummy. I don't want to sweep your floor. Didn't ask if you wanted to. Told you to sweep the floor. And then some newcomer come up and tap me on the shoulder. What are you doing? I'm grateful. <laughs> this will help my sobriety. <laughs> Want to help? Loser. Then he take me to speaker meetings. Right where this guy we were sitting, Barney'd be sitting there, and I'd be in the back row right where you two are, and there'd be some speaker up here lying like I am. <laughs> and I'd be talking to him, critiquing the speaker. <laughs> I'm not doing nothing wrong. I'm just kind of taking his inventory. He's lying. He didn't really do that. Listen to that crap. What a loser. He's drinking. I know he is. And then my sponsor turned around and looked at me in a room full of 300 people. And here's what I heard him say. Shut up, you goddamn loser. You ain't got nothing we want to hear. Shut up and leave. Go out to your abandoned car. Stupid. That's what I heard him say. Now, what he really said was this. <laughs> I jumped out of my chair and he said, yeah, yeah, I'll tell you. He looked at me like this. <laughs> I hear things funny. I'm a sensitive person. I don't suffer well, and I don't suffer alone. <laughs> I believe in that kind of group activity. But I follow them around. They took me to coffee, finally. You ever been taken to AA coffee? Let me tell you how they took me to AA coffee. They said I was squirrely. So they wouldn't take me. And I said, Barney, can I go to coffee? He said, okay, dummy, get in the car. In the back, where you belong. This guy's hurting my feelings. Gotta have 20 years getting the front seat. So then we go up to the village inn in Moline, Illinois for coffee after the meeting. Five guys had piled out of the car. Barney said, don't stay in the car. Okay. A couple minutes later, he'd send one of his other babies out with a cup of coffee. He gave it to me. Wouldn't even ask if I wanted to sugar. He says, we'll be on about an hour. And I sit there and drink it. And wonder why I couldn't go in. How am I going to get home? I got to sit out here. I can't go home today. Come on, Larry. Come on, Larry. Never dawned on me I could have got out of the car and walked three blocks to my house. Because <laughs> when I get to think, think, thinking, it, nothing works. My sponsor took me up to the slogan, think, think, think. And he shoved my head into it and he says, you see that, dummy? I said, I can't help but see it. Say, for you it means don't, don't, don't. God, was he insensitive. And I'm drinking. I can't quit drinking. You see, I found out something about you and I. We can't quit drinking. And you know what a gift that is? No, I can't quit drinking. You know, I haven't had a drink of Budweiser or any other kind of alcohol since November 8, 1977. And it's all one day at a time and I have not quit drinking. To this day, I have not quit drinking. I know too many people with much more time than me that have succumbed to the desire to drink again. So I know I can't quit drinking. I have proof I can't quit drinking. But one day at a time, I cannot drink today. And if you're a new newcomer, cherish that. Because there ain't a person in this room, in my opinion, who can quit drinking. But when you band us together in a fellowship like this, we can do one day what I can't do for one year. It's a fantastic thing. And I came to you for five years and could not stop drinking. You even gave me jobs to do, trying to help me. You gave me an answer to the interview phone at central office. I would take a call for help. I would call Lester and Oswald, and they'd go get this drunk and save him. A year later, old Joe Silver would be in a meeting. He'd be bragging about how Chester and Oswald saved his life, but nobody ever mentioned the person that took the phone call. <laughs> I know that. I want my picture up between Bill and Bob. <laughs> There's room for more. 
<laughs> so I'm answering the phone. Four days I'm sober. I made it four days without a drink by answering that phone. And one day, and this call came in for help. And I had this moment of inspiration. So there's a guy named Wayne B. coming over to your house. He's going to help you. I hung up, closed the office. My first problem was, how do I do this? I've never done it. You've all told me you're never going to 12-step call alone. No way. If I go, they'll give Chester the credit. They won't mention my name. So I'm going by myself. You see, I'm supposed to take a big book. I suppose that's big enough to hit them in the head if they get out of line. So I'll take the big book. Let's see. What else do I got to do? Oh, yeah. I heard the old-timers say that they used to take alcohol along <laughs> to nurse a green recruit to a spree. So I picked up a 12-pack of blood and took it with me. <laughs> I'm going to tell you right now, the only reason he left me in that house is because I had that 12-pack of blood. His eyes got like this. So we went in. We sat down at this table, and I shoved in the big book, said, opened up to page one, and I opened up a bud and drank it. <laughs> I did. He wanted one, and I said, no. <laughs> he says, why? I said, you called for help. <laughs> I drank that whole swamp pack. When I got down to that last can, I looked at him and I said, pal, I'm out of here. <laughs> I can't take another word of your dribble. You are truly pathetic, pal. I gave him a meeting schedule. I said, you call these people tomorrow, maybe they can help you. <laughs> and I left. The next day, he went to AA. He has not had a drink since that day. <laughs> it was my first successful job. <laughs> and he ratted me out, you ungrateful puke. <laughs> the OA police came and showed up and wanted my in-group team. No, he calls me every year on my birthday to see if I'm still sober. <laughs> he got six months more than me. And I wasn't about to ask him to be my sponsor, neither. I didn't. I shot him dead. <laughs> so I'm going to meetings. I'm drinking. I'm doing everything you tell me to do. And I'm drinking. I went to a meeting one Saturday night where they give out chips. I wanted a chip. I wanted a chip. I just could not drink long enough to give. They didn't want to give me a newcomer chip. Because they said I'd take one every day for 365 days. <laughs> you give me a little podium pass. You'll never get rid of me, pal. One night I was in my home group and they were giving out chips. This guy got up and got a 30-day chip and he gave a speech. Everybody clapped and I was moved. I've got seven days. I put together seven days. They called out 90 days and this gal got up and got a 90-day chip. She talked. They clapped. She sat down. I was moved. They called out six months. I got up. <laughs> and I claimed a six-month chip. They all clapped and laughed. <laughs> they gave me the chip. I took it. Gave me speech. <laughs> <laughs> about how wonderful he is and I love you all <laughs> and then I took that chip and they all thanked me for coming and sharing and I went down to Larry or Bill Molly's tap and Moline showed Larry my chip he said what's that for? I said Larry I ain't had a drink for six months he looked at me said I threw you out of here myself a week ago <laughs> so I punched you in the mouth that's a lie he said let me buy you a bud. Okay. <laughs> I was absolutely powerless. Absolutely powerless. You see, my family's gone. They're gone. Now I'm hanging around that way. This is the only place I got to go. You're the only ones that will let me do anything with you. And you know what? I want you to hear something. You never said you can't come because you're drinking. You just suggested it works better. <laughs> I suggest to you, if you ever find a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous where they don't let drunk people in, that is not AA. It is a gathering of people who forgot from whence they came. Of course, that's just my opinion. I love AA. we got to keep AA simple, according to the traditions that was written to protect us from me. That's why he wrote them. He wrote them to protect them from him. And they keep us bounded together. 
Because you see, I kept coming here, and one day I'll never forget this. I come through the back door of the meeting, and my sponsor yelled out, Hey, dummy! That was bothering me a lot. And he says, This program tends to work better if you don't drink. That got my attention. I wheeled around, I pulled my 357 out of my boot, and I tried to shoot my sponsor in the face. If he'd have been six inches taller, I'd have got the sucker. Next morning I came to, naked, in six-point leather restraints at Franciscan Mental Health Center in Rock Island, tied to a steel bed in the center of a padded room. And I was bruised from head to toe. <laughs> Had some AA group therapy. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, there ain't no therapy at the morning group. <laughs> I had a visitor. You know who it was? My sponsor. Can you believe it? I couldn't get rid of this guy for nothing. He looked down at me, naked and snickering. And he says, Dummy, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> I had a clue. <laughs> he said, just quit. He said, I don't know if you're an alcoholic. You may just be nuts. And I'm thinking, we'll find out who's nuts when I get up from here. I'm going to kill you. Not knowing that's why I was there. Because I was in a blackout. I didn't know why I was there. And I didn't have whatever it took to ask. I didn't want to know why I was there. And then he says, you know what, dummy, if they let you up from there, and I'm not sure they're going to. They're talking about a lifetime commitment or a lobotomy for you. You've been a problem for a lot of people for a long time. He says, but if they let you up from there and come with us and do what we did and still do, you might make it, pal. And he got my attention. And I did get out of there because Barney went to him and said, release him to me. Can you believe that? See, I learned all about AA five years drinking. Can you believe that? If anybody ever tells you you can't reach someone who's drinking, that is not true because the love of one alcoholic for another alcoholic goes beyond that. My mind might be affected by alcohol, but my soul is waiting for something. And only one alcoholic talking to me can reach that part of my being. And I'm so glad I know that today because I will talk to anybody. Now, you got to behave while you're here, though. They will throw you out. <laughs> That's how you come back next day. But if you don't act like that, you can't be here. I love that. I got sober. You see, what alcoholism is, this is an interesting thing for me. All I wanted was for 4.5 Budweiser's to make me feel the way you look. Just for a little while. That's all I wanted. And it did it for a while. And then when the insanity was on me, it didn't do it no more. I was left to my own devices. With no God. Now, you know what the problem is? I don't have a God. Lack of power is my dilemma. Pull the cord out of the wall, what do you got? You got problems, pal. And you see in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says that deep down inside every man, woman, and child is a fundamental idea of God. Now, you may think you're an atheist or an agnostic, and I don't personally care. The book says every. And I operate under that illusion. Every person. And then it goes on to say, he may be obscured by pomp, calamity, and worship of other things. But in the last analysis, it's only there that he may be found. And I submit to you that my terrible depression was linked to my distance from my loving Father God. And the farther you took me away from that power, the more naturally depressed I became. To a point where they labeled me manic depressive. They misdiagnosed me. I was spiritually depressed. And alcohol affected my spirit in such a manner... It gave me the illusion that I was okay. And the book says that I have to find a power greater than that if I'm to overcome drinking. How do I find that power? I found it with you. That's how I found it. And I'll never forget how good you've been to me in the discovery of that. But it's been a painful process. You know in the book it says that the admission price to a new life in the 12 and 12. The admission to a new way of life is pain. Not the kind of pain I thought about. The pain of remembering. The pain of drawing up all that. Because you know what the obscurity is? The pomp and the worship? Women. For me. Money. Objects. Material things. Those stood in the way of my ability to see the God that's in me. You ever fall in love with someone <coughs> relatively new? Because you see... Serious for a minute. You look in her eye and you see a shining thing that you know is God. Because it is there in every one of us. The trouble is, is if you're looking into my eyes and you see, you, you see God, and I knew you got trouble. Because God's in there, but He's so clouded. 
so obscured that I'm absolutely forced to live by my self-will until I go through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and remove that obscurity. It's really that simple. That's what the 12 steps do. They take that obscurity, one through nine, the obscurity, the pomp, and the worship of other things, and move it aside long enough that Wayne Butler can get a glimpse at the God within Wayne. And then I don't need faulty emotional dependencies anymore. But you see, I've got a world of hurt on me. I've done tragic things that I know can never be forgiven. I've got things in my history that I know God will make me burn for. I know it. I don't even need to tell you because I know it. And there was my flaw. I wasn't going to tell. Thank God for the steps. Now, the first year I was sober, I did everything my sponsor told me to do. I followed him around like a whipped pup. I'll tell you what, I had my head so far in his butt, if he had turned left or right, he'd broke my neck. <laughs> I would have been dead, on the floor, out, done. And when I started getting interested in girls other than my wife, Barney would go along and tell him my story. So you never heard about him trying to shoot his wife in the head, have you? They're gone. Barney, you're ruining my sex life. He says, go home to your wife. I don't like sponsors like that. So the first year I did everything he told me to do. And then I got well. There's a thing called spiritual intoxication that I got into. Because I finally got some relief from my mind. And I went from the level of spiritual awakening to spiritual intoxication. The big book defines spiritual intoxication as two things. One, spiritual make-believe. And two, distortion of values. And I had all that. I didn't have a God. I had people trying to tell me that it was my own mind telling me something. And with my pattern of think, think, thinking, I should have heard him, but I didn't. So from my second year to my seventh year, I did steps 1, 12, and 13. Normally when there's women in the room, I tell them that if I come up to them after the meeting and offer them to a cup of coffee to talk about God, I tell them to run. Because I don't need none of that nonsense, because I know God really ain't there. But that was my pattern. And in my seventh year of sobriety, having failed to work the steps, having no knowledge of what my condition really was because I hadn't worked the steps by the big book, I was at an emotional position with no God that I just couldn't. I'm sitting in a room of alcoholics, and I don't get to stay with you. I don't fit. But I've got these disciplines of going to meetings every day, of calling my sponsor regularly, of asking for help in the morning, saying thanks at night. Those are all disciplines I did, even though I didn't believe in them. In my seventh year of sobriety, my mom, my dad, and my grandma, all three, died within three days of each other. I lost my house, my car, and the kids in a divorce when my wife and I got divorced. My daughter was raped by the minister of her church, whom happened to be my brother-in-law. She attempted suicide. My roommate took my gun and killed a parole officer. I had a bad week. <laughs> I did not want to drink. Isn't that something? The thought to drink did not occur to me because when I think about drinking, that's exactly what I do. I am powerless over the drink. But I thought about suicide, and I thought about getting help. So I went to a doctor against my sponsor's knowledge, and the doctor recommended amitriptyline, which is an antidepressant, and I'm not here to give you an opinion on that. I'm just sharing my personal experience. I was going to take it, and I went to my sponsor. I weighed 146 pounds. I had a 29-inch waist. I'd lost my denture. I had no idea where my teeth were, and I didn't care. I asked Barney if I could take the pills. He said, sure. I'm not God. He said, but why don't you try the steps first? That bothered me. My brain exploded. I tried to tell him I've been here for seven years. I'm doing everything you tell me to do. He says, yep, everything but the steps. He says, you've done the fellowship. You've done the girls. You've done it all. Except for the program. <laughs> On the outside chance, he might be right. <laughs> it's like when someone suggests that there might be a life after and that God might be real and the day's going to come, you're going to find out if it's true or not. He says, don't you think it'd be better if you acted as though it were true and found out it was than acted as though it's not and found out it was? I had this knot in my stomach after I heard that. I couldn't figure that out. I understand it today. He sent me out to California, and I stayed out there for six months and got some distance between me and my mind and the stuff that was going on. I mean, it's just so much stuff. You can understand it. just so much stuff. But I didn't want to drink. And I really didn't want to take the pills. I knew I wasn't manic-depressive. I knew it was about God. I knew it was. But I'm scared of God. When you got the history I've got, I was responsible for my nephew's death. When I was 15 years old, my mother asked me to walk my nephew Skippy home from kindergarten. She says, do not walk through Sunset Marina. You know what that meant, don't you? I got to go right through Sunset Marina. 
And I walked him through, and the school boys that knew I was retarded were picking on me. <clears throat> they knew I couldn't swim. They tried to throw me in the water, and it scared me to death, and I ran. I wet myself. I'm not proud of that. I'm so ashamed of that sometimes. And I ran so fast that when they yelled out, if I didn't come back, they'd throw Skippy in. I just barely heard it, and I just kept running. When I got home, my mom says, where's Skippy? I lied to her and said, I already dropped him off at home. Because that's all I know to do, and I don't know. Short while later, the police and my sister show up. My sister is just a mess. Skippy drowned. Now, the kids said that he fell in. I knew what was true. And I knew I was responsible. Because my mother told me not to go through Sunset Marina at 15. I have other things in my history that I didn't think I could ever make right. But thanks to you guys that have come to the podium before me and shared your worst stories and secrets. And then you smiled. Like you laughed when I told you I tried to shoot my wife in the head. You laughed. Thank you. <laughs> you don't know helped. That saved me. I thought you were going to say, you can't be here. Leave. That's what I thought you were going to say. I thought if you knew all the immoral things I'd done, you'd say, you can't be here. You've never said that to me. You clapped louder. The sicker I got, the more you like me. It's the damnedest thing I ever saw. I couldn't wait to tell you everything. <laughs> then I started making a few things up. <laughs> Seven and a half years sober, I read something in the 12 and 12, page 15, paragraph 3. I'd like to recite it for you. It says, AA's 12 steps are a group of principles, spiritual in their nature. In case you ever wondered what the carrot of AA is, I believe this is it. The twelve steps are a group of principles, spiritual in their nature, which, when practiced as a way of life, as a way of life, gentlemen, not as a 2.3 times a week, drop-in center after care when you need help, as a way of life, the way we're doing it right now, when practiced as a way of life, can expel the obsession to drink and enable the sufferer, who is me, who can enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. That, I submit to you, is all I ever wanted. Was for one minute out of one day to feel happy, useful, and whole. But you see, when you got a hole in your gut like I had, and the answer is God, and you don't know that's the problem, that you don't have it. I don't know how to get it. I've been to church. I've been sprinkled, burned near ground. You ever been baptized, y'all? You ever been to a tent revival, have you? I went to a Baptist tent revival when my wife cooked me. I wanted help. I didn't know I wanted to quit drinking. I just wanted help for the spirit that was paying me. I sit right in the front row of his Baptist ministry. He's up there. He's just jumping all over the place. I'm getting a little scared of him. And all of a sudden, and I know some of you will understand this, I started to feel my spirit moved. I know that's what it was. I wasn't drunk. I wasn't drinking. I felt something moving in me. And by the time he was done, I jumped down to my knees with a boost from my wife. And he put his hands on me and said some things, and I honestly believed when I got up from there that I was saved. I believed it. My wife had that Al-Anon hope. We got in my car, we drove home, we passed Larry's Oasis, and I said, honey, I got to tell Larry about this. <laughs> she said, you think that's a good idea? I said, absolutely. I got Jesus and he needs help. I went in the back door of Larry's Oasis and he was bartending and I looked at him, he looked at me and I said, hey Larry! He said, my God, what's gotten into you? I said, the Spirit of Jesus is in me, Larry, and you need it too! He said, damn if I know, let me buy you a bite. I said, okay. <laughs> that's not blasphemy, that's alcoholism. It's alcoholism. You brought me to a belief. You helped me uncover the truth about myself through the 12 steps. You see, when I read that in the 12 and 12, I honestly believed that I could become happy and useful and whole if I just followed you guys around like a wet blanket, and that's exactly what I've done for 18 years, 5 months, and 2 days. I have been with you, and I'm happy about it. Now, I used to be in... Me and the... Yeah, Oswald, thank you. Let's say call you Osborne, but I knew that wasn't true. We were talking, and I was talking to a couple other people about my the fact that I've overcome numerous faulty emotional dependencies. You know, I, I couldn't get a girlfriend after my wife and I got divorced. Couldn't get a date. I'd tell my story, they wouldn't talk to me. <laughs> I was lonely. 
My kids had nothing to do with me. I'm nine years sober. My kids won't have nothing to do with me. My family doesn't want me near their house. I'm sober nine years. I don't think there's no hope. I hear you guys coming up here saying, and my wife and kids love me again. And I envision shooting you. Where's the hope? It's like that commercial. Where's the love, man? But my sponsor said, Bunny, just keep doing the drill. I could try to change his mind about my name. It was futile. I worked the steps. Now, when I was eight years sober, I weighed 146 pounds. I had a 29-inch waist, and I was in bad shape, had no teeth. A friend of mine in AA sent me to his dentist and bought me a set of teeth. I had a spiritual experience after I worked the 12 steps. Within a year, I weighed 242 pounds. I thought something was wrong with me. I was growing quick. I thought I I had a reverse disease of some kind. I had no idea I was growing up. I had to change clothes five or six times. And then I did something I didn't think I could ever do. I applied for the Polk County Sheriff's Department in Des Moines, Iowa. The real Sheriff's Department. I didn't think I had a chance. I'm retarded. You see, I've never let go of that. I'm retarded. I've never had a job above menial level. I've never been accomplished at anything. I, I can't even kill nobody. I'm just a potential. I just, every time I try, it don't work. I'm a failure at every... I can't even kill myself. I remember I wrote myself a letter one time. I was so lonely when I was pathetically lost in self-pity. Have you ever wrote yourself a letter so somebody will talk to you? And then you mail it to yourself and you get it in three days and you can't open it because you ain't sure you wanted to commit suicide. And if you wanted to commit suicide, you didn't. And then you're a failure at that too. That's a mess. My eight years bright, that all turned around. It all turned around just because I worked the steps. I wish it was more dramatic than that, people. But I worked the 12 steps. I applied for the Polk County Sheriff's Office. A federal judge expunged my record because you went to him with letters and said I could be trusted. You said I'd done things. That I'd done, but I was so deluded with myself I didn't know I was doing them. They had me take three psychiatric, well, actually I took a total of five batteries of psychiatric tests, passed them, said I was a little rigid. <laughs> now I'm retarded. I don't do well in school. I went to the academy. I told the truth. My sponsor said tell the truth. I told the people who was in school with me. And they helped me study. They helped me take tests. They helped me wrote, memorize answers. And I graduated fourth in the academy. And they gave me a gun. <laughs> they gave me a 357. Stainless with orange tip. <laughs> I'd go home. <laughs> Couldn't wait to arrest my first bad guy. I'm, I got I got about five minutes. I was a deputy for four years, and I loved it. I was a good officer. Uh, I learned from you. Now, you know, it's a men's convention, so I feel a little freer to say some things than I would if it was an ordinary men's convention. But I want to tell you something. I don't know how to be a man amongst men. I don't know how to love you without thinking something's wrong. I don't know how to be a man with men. I think we have to fight. You see, I know if you want the same woman, you go out and kick the crap out of each other, and you're best friends. You both lose the woman, but you're best friends. I don't know how to be a man. I don't know how to do this. I, I'm retarded. I don't know how to do this. My sponsor helped me do it by having me work with you. Now, when I got to the amend step, remember I told you I didn't know how I was ever going to pay that back? How do I give back five childhoods that I stole? See, my sponsor wasn't kind to me. He said, dummy, you stripped five kids of their childhood. You ain't going to be well until you give it back. And he said, your son, you took away everything he might have done. I said, how do I give that back, Barney? Because by now I'm remorseful. What a wonderful, blessed thing remorse is. It indicates true spiritual willingness. I became remorseful. I wanted to change things. I didn't know how. How do you do I don't know how to do it. I don't want to ask you because you might say you can't be here. My sponsor says, you got to sponsor people. He says, you sponsor some young people and help give them their life back. I said, really? Guess what happened? I was sober 13 years. I was in court. I was prosecuting a drunk driver. I was witnessing. And I heard the prosecutor talking to this probation officer. They're going to revoke this woman's probation. They're going to send her to prison for two to five years. She failed treatment for the third time and was arrested for drunk driving. And they said her name was Lisa M. Smith. I said, I know that I know that name. So I snuck over there and I saw the mugshot. And it was a girl I knew in meetings. And that's why I know her. 
I said, she failed treatment, but she's never had a chance at AA. And the judge knew I was in AA. I said, why don't you let her try AA? And he looked at me and said, well, I'll tell you what, pal. We'll let you and her try AA. I understand that sponsorship thing you do. He says, if you'll agree to sponsor her, I'll probate her to you. If she drinks one time, she's going for two to five years. I said, men ain't supposed to sponsor women. He says, I'm not in AA. <laughs> I'm not going to argue with the judge. And I started sponsoring Lisa. Got her into AA. Would you? It wasn't me. Don't let me kid you. Tell me that story. I'm not making you think it's me. It was you. I go over to you. And you did it. She went to college, got a degree, got thrown off probation. They didn't want her no more. Now her picture's up at her probation officers, but not because she's wanted. But because they use her as their example of success. And then within three weeks, I was working with three more women just like her. And guess what? For the last five years, I've helped give four young ladies their life back. And my sponsor says that makes up for my four daughters. Now, here's the kicker. Four years ago, my daughter got married and I wasn't invited to the wedding. Thirteen years sober. It hurt me deeply. I called my sponsor said, Barney, my daughter's getting married and I just found out through the grapevine. He said, send her a card and money. Don't forget the money. <laughs> I didn't want to. I sent the card and the money. And it's been five years since I worked with those four women and they've got their life back. They've all gone to college. They've all gotten degrees and they've got good jobs. My daughter called me up a few months back and my baby daughter's getting married next month and I'm walking her down the aisle. You know the daughter that got married four years ago? They're going to rededicate their vows in a church. They got married by Justice of the Peace. They're going to get married in a church. Ask me to pay for it, of course. <laughs> and she's doing it for the only reason to let me walk her down the aisle. And I want you to know something that makes my day. <laughs> and uh, these guys I sponsor, I guess maybe that was my payback for my son. And I want you to know I have no remorse left over the kids that I stole their childhood from because of the way I acted, drunk and sober. There is payback here. We do get to balance the scales. Now, my wife, how do I pay that back? I try to be kind and loving and friendly to her. When she calls me, I don't say things that are inappropriate no matter what she says to me. And a year and a half ago, I started dating a girl, very beautiful woman. She's an actress wannabe in Los Angeles. Very attractive, very... You get the idea, guys. She gets more bids for dinner than I can afford to take her to. And you know what? I haven't asked her one time in 18 months what she's doing, who she's doing it with. I ask her, did you have a good time? And I mean it. I'm not afraid of losing her because I'll tell you why. I have found a God of my own understanding and I've plugged into the power source. And I know if she moves on, I'm still loved. This isn't just podium talk. This is the way my life is right now. Because you gave me a plan of action. <coughs> Steps 10, 11, and 12 have given me concreteness to my foundation. I do it every day. I don't skip because I found out that the rewards of doing it every day far outweigh the pain and suffering of not doing it every day. Wish he was more virtuous than that. I do the 11th step exactly the same way Bill Wilson did. And I've been doing it that way for 11 years now. I wake up and the first thing I do in the morning is I pick out one of the 12 sentences. By the way, there's 12 sentences in the prayer of St. Francis. And I take one each week or each day like, where there is hatred, let me bring love. That's my favorite. Because it means where there is hatred, where do I do things that cause self-destruction? See, it's about hating myself. How can I bring love to my life without getting all emotionally intoxicated on myself? It's easy. Do things that don't cause pain in my life. Don't do something that will hurt you and separate you from me. And I've been doing that for 11 years and all of a sudden everybody's coming back. And I get to come spend time with you guys and have fun. We laugh a lot, cry a little, remember many things that I wish I didn't have to remember. But yet if I forget and slam the door shut, I'm doomed to repeat it again. And uh, these newcomers that I sponsor and the guys that aren't newcomers anymore, they saved my life. I didn't save their life. I don't ever want you. If you ever hear me say I saved someone's life, I want you to hit me right in the head with a big book. You'll never get the chance, Jason. I just, I just find hope. <laughs> i got to wrap it up. I want to thank you for uh, inviting me to come spend this weekend with you. It's true, I'll go anywhere for free food. Most of you, I bet, think I mean breakfast or lunch or dinner. 
That's not it. You know what the free food is? It's the love of one alcoholic that reaches out and touches me for fun and for free when it's you and me. That's my free food. I will go anywhere for free food. And I submit to you if you're new, if you do that too, there's hope. For those of you that are new or maybe you need renewed, I would like to invite you to join those of us that are on the high road in the fellowship of the Spirit. If you're new, put one hand in the hand of someone with one day more than you. Put the other hand in the hand of someone with one day less than you. You will be left with no hands with which to pick up a drink. Come with us and do what we did and still do, and you can recover too. Thank you.